Bloom, Buddhist Reflections on Serenity and Love by Ajahn Sona. Chapter 2. Binoculars Clear and Focused We're trying to trace the whole spirit and attitude of this meditation called Mindfulness of Breathing. The full title, which you can find in the Samyutta Nikaya, The Connected Discourses, is actually Anapanasati Samadhi Sutta. Note 1. SN 54. Anapana Samyutta. There are 20 suttas. The first six suttas are framed in terms simply of mindfulness of breathing, Anapanasati. From 54.7 onwards to 54.20, a shift takes place, and the suttas are phrased in terms of concentration by mindfulness of breathing, phrased in the term Anapanasati Samadhi. End of note. So Samadhi is added to the normal title Anapanasati. Since Samadhi is added, it's very explicit that this is a Samadhi exercise, the eighth factor of the Noble Eightfold Path, concentration. I hate to call it concentration, though, because there's a sense of tension and laser-like focus around concentration, which ends up giving you a headache, and that is not the nature of Samadhi. There is an element of focus, but it's more like focusing a pair of binoculars. Do you see the difference between that and, say, focusing a laser? It's when those binoculars suddenly come into clarity. The mind is ordinarily unfocused. It's in roaming mode. Another way to talk about delusion is also a lack of clarity. What is it to be clear, lucid? We have to use similes from the visual world. We're trying to talk about the mind focusing, and it's such a beautiful thing. For instance, think of a radio station not on the channel, just off the channel. I'm so out of touch with radio stations, maybe they don't do that anymore. Digital radio can't get off the channel. But when you used to have those little knobs you turned, you could be not on the channel and it would be all fuzzy. And then when you finally dialed it in, something happened. Clarity. That's what we're looking for this lucidity and clarity of the mind. I think that as you use the breath, you need to know where you're going with it and what you're looking for. It's like the sun coming out from behind the clouds, like the moon coming out from behind the clouds. This is one of the similes they use regularly. That the atmosphere can have mist and clouds and smoke is a simile for the mind. When the mind becomes lucid, it's as if the moon comes out and shines from behind smoke and mist and clouds. So the mind comes out and shines. It's luminous. I don't want to get too carried away with the idea of light, though. This is one of the things that I think is somewhat misleading. It's very clear that certain psychological states do produce certain emotions. Moments in life can change your sense perception to where you might describe what's happened to be as if darkness had come over the mind. When you're depressed, when you're afraid, it does seem the only description is darkness, that there's a kind of loss of light. It's almost as if the sun isn't shining properly. But then the darkness ends. You feel relief. Everything looks luminous. 
you can actually have an increase in visual consciousness where everything looks luminous. So it's not totally misleading, but I don't think people should get too literal about lights shining, almost as if they're shining in your eyes and so forth. Keep it more poetic. It will be more meaningful as poetry. You'll also know that at some points in your life, you have experienced this. If you can't remember it, keep an eye out for what happens when your mood changes. Even if you're outside walking on a very gloomy, rainy day, when the sun comes out, the mood changes. This is the luminosity that we're actually looking for. Light has no significance in and of itself. It's a side effect of the lightening up of the emotions, the heart element. What is it that lightens up? It is the oppressive qualities of life which become habitual. There's the habit of weight in our lives. It just becomes the norm so that we begin to experience it all day long and then right into the night and sometimes into our dreams as well. It's an oppressive sense of demand and a certain sense of relentless vigilance over some unspecified possibility of danger somewhere. You're like a deer. You see the deer out there, they're incredibly vigilant because they really are at risk all the time. We end up being like deer. We end up habitualizing this vigilance, this safety vigilance. It's very depleting. Are we never safe? Now, Buddhism, the Dhamma, comes at it in two ways. The Buddha says, let's get it clear, you're never safe. Now, let's get it clear. Quit worrying. You're never safe, so just stop worrying about it. Being hypervigilant does not make anything safer. You have to realize that there are some things you can count on in life, and certainly death is one of them. So there are some certainties. At first, we don't want to hear that kind of thing. We're walking around trying to be vigilant as if we could escape the possibility of death, but we can't. We are mortal, very vulnerable, and things are out of control. It's very uncertain. Once we reconcile ourselves with that, we have only one little area left. But it's a profound area, actually. It's the inner life, where we decide to accept the truth about things, how it really is. It's not that hard to see. Just take the filters off, look around. What you see is fact, and we shouldn't distort it in any way. We shouldn't think, we're going to get away with it. Others might have a problem, but thank goodness it won't happen to me. No, you have to reverse that and say, you know, any day it could be my turn. That frees you. It lightens the heart. You've accepted the truth, and now what? What's left to do with it? This breath meditation helps you move towards an acceptance of the truth, but the samadhi part of it is to live beautifully without ignoring the truth. The Buddha is taking you back to this period of childhood before you were existentially anxious about everything. Was there ever a period in one's life before that constant vigilance and anxious concern was there? This gives you a hint of where it might go with the breath. With the breath, we want to use every resource we have. It's not merely watching the breath. That's not the instruction. 
there's some very strong suggestions for you to do something while you're watching the breath. One of them is to brighten your mind, to gladden, cheer, raise the mind. At the end of many a Dhamma talk by the Buddha, they say, quote, and he had cheered, gladdened, raised the spirits of whoever he was talking to, whether it be monks or lay people. There's a very deliberate intent to change the whole emotional structure and the mood, as well as to shed light on things, to expose the truth, and to show a way to be with the truth without being oppressed. He's lifting oppression from that emotional structure. This is also what you're encouraged to do for yourself, as if the Buddha was talking to you in the breath meditation. He's saying, the mind has a tendency to wander. So one of the primary functions of breath meditation is to reduce or cut off completely discursive thought. Discursive thought is discourse. We talk about noble silence. But noble silence is not a matter of lack of speaking. It's when the inner silence arises. Noble silence is when you stop talking to yourself, when it stops talking to you, or you stop answering at least. This is how one really becomes a self-contained person, one who can be happy in many different circumstances. This is the art of inner silence. The Buddha gives you this beautiful option. He gives you something so primary, ultimate simplicity. There are a number of meditation subjects, and they're all incredibly primary. There's the element of water, the element of air, the element of fire, the element of earth. And then there are the primary colors of blue, red, yellow, and white. There are primary emotions, the most beautiful emotions, loving-kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. The list goes on of incredibly simple, basic primary things. Primary colors, light, and the primary elements of life. The elements that we see as humans and that are found in every language. Obviously, in the scientific age, there are about a hundred elements in the periodic table, but you can't see them and you can't feel them. You can, however, experience directly the fundamental element of air. Look at how simple these things are. In contrast, the mind's problem is something called papancha. This word papancha is variously translated through history, but the way most monastics understand it now is as proliferation. That's a fairly modern notion of what it means. A Sri Lankan monk named Nyanananda brought out that meaning of proliferation, the proliferation of thoughts. One of the similes for papancha is vines growing up around trees. Thought proliferation. We've got it in spades because of the nature of our culture. But it was already a problem in the 5th century BC. Something went wrong in our evolutionary process. We got something great that made us the dominant species on Earth, but it came with a backside. Every front has a back. What made us dominant is that we can think. The problem is, nobody knows how to shut it off. Where's the off button for this thing? Of course, they'll never tell you that in school, because you can't really have an education system where you sit there quietly and don't do anything. There should be a course in silence. 
It's a problem when this thing runs all the time. So there's a need for the art of quieting it, of bringing it down. The Buddha is so clever, so smart, so wise. And he's smart enough to know that even smartness gets tiring after a while. That really is smart. That's the next level up in the game. Yeah, smartness is great. It's a sword. It can cut things in the world. Wisdom is often represented as a sword that cuts through things. Remember the story of the Gordian Knot and Alexander the Great? Nobody had ever been able to untangle the Gordian Knot. Alexander walks in, cuts it in half, it falls apart. There is this idea that the intellect is a sword that cuts through things. Great, it has its uses. But you need to be able to put the analytical discursive mind away. The Buddha talks about his capacity to think. He says, whatever I wish to think, that I think. Whatever I do not wish to think, that I do not think. He also describes how fast it happens for him. Whatever he turns his attention to, he understands very quickly. So it's not that he doesn't think anymore. He has a use for this instrument, but it's an instrument. It's not out of control. It's not running the household. Instead, it is a servant to him. The discursive activity of the mind is to serve you, to support your well-being in the practical world, and also in the inner world where you have to sort out all kinds of things, like your relationship with other people around you, what's going on with you, practical issues of knowledge in the world. You call it and ask it to perform this task. Now, if you go into a house where a bunch of kids are not well-behaved, then you'll see what the nature of the mind is. There's a very different atmosphere in the place where they are well-behaved compared to where they are savages. I don't see it as freedom. Untrained kids and untrained dogs are not free. They're a damn nuisance. Our minds are a nuisance as well if they're not trained. They bark all night, they will dig up the neighbor's garden, they will dart out into traffic. That's not man's best friend, is it? It's not your best friend. The most beautifully trained mind is like a seeing-eye dog or a search-and-rescue dog. This is a blessing. A friend that is lucid, attentive, understanding, clear. This is a blessing in life. One who is chaotic is a burden. You might make some merit with compassion in that case. It's always possible that you will get some gratification from helping somebody who is staggering around in the world as if they're blind. But to be in the presence of somebody who is lucid, clear, orderly, this is such a privilege. So this is the purpose of breath meditation, to bring the mind into clarity and lucidity so you can look through the binoculars and see the details. Now, binoculars do take some time to make. A while back, I was reading about the history of lenses and the discovery that you could magnify things, that you could put two lenses together and see even more closely into things. There's a huge amount of work involved in the polishing of lenses, and it's the same with the mind. Before we see anything, it has to be lucid, clear, and free of all these impediments. They talk about the mist and the twinkling and so forth in meditation. 
All these little distracting elements, little visuals and wanderings and cloudiness of the mind, they overturn the purpose of this. The purpose is to use this breath, the air. And it's really quite important that we understand that breath meditation is air element meditation. They share something. Air is not a visual thing. It's something you can feel, but you can't see. It has no shape or color. It's possible, of course, that when you do breath meditation for a while and then step outside, you'll see the wind blowing through the trees, bending and waving them, and you'll feel a kind of connection. Because the mind is so preoccupied with this air that goes in and out of you, it also blurs the line between the external environment and the internal environment. One of our problems in modern times is that we've utterly divided objective reality and subjective reality. Science has this presumption that there is an independently existing external reality that is always behaving according to laws and has nothing to do with internal consciousness. You're born and raised in a culture that talks like this all the time. It's bound to have an effect on you. But this is a fairly modern idea. It only occurs in one culture where this absolute distinction between the objective reality and the internal reality is made. This society gives priority to the objective reality. Earlier cultures did not give priority to external reality. They'd say, internal reality is obviously more important. How I feel about things matters. I can't dismiss this. The Buddha is not denying there is an external reality. He's just saying, it's not the main issue here. The main issue is your subjective experience of suffering. And suffering has a broad range, including just the problem of being alive, the existential pressure. We have to understand where the Buddha is coming from, and we have to be aware of our own conditioning. Why do we have trouble with this breath stuff? It's because we have to overcome things. It's not a scientific experiment. It's something for the mind. When this external reality called the air passes into us, becomes us, what is that experience like? We abandon objective reality to just feel what it is. When it enters through your nasal cavity, you are hollow. There's nothing in your head. That's what it feels like. We impose an objective idea about what our head is, but we want to step into a different kind of reality here and allow there to be nothing in our head. In the end, if we get into a nice, deep stillness, our body will also disappear, just being maybe a wisp of the body. There's many a statement in the suttas about what the arahant feels like, and they often talk about being a tuft of cotton blowing in the wind, just dandelion fluff floating in the wind. That's how light they feel. And that's not imagination. That is objective reality. They only weigh a quarter of an ounce. Why? Because emotional oppression, the weight of the mind not well used, is what causes there to be a body. The body is experienced through the mind. Most modern science is aware of the brain. They would say that our experience of the body is a function of the brain, 
They say, yes, there is this body, but if we do something with one of those little circuits in your brain, your leg disappears, or it moves over here, or it appears on your face. All kinds of weird things do happen like that. When you lose a limb, there's a problem with an itchiness on the hand that isn't there. It's called phantom limb syndrome. You don't have an arm, but you do have this terrible itch in your hand. What are you going to do about that? Apparently, there is a way, though. You can find the itch because your arm, your hand, is very close to your upper lip in your brain. Eventually, you can learn to scratch your hand by scratching your upper lip because nerves will migrate to the lip. So we're in a different reality now, aren't we? It's very scientific, but it's very weird as well. Your body is in your mind. The Buddha knows this very well. The body is in the mind. He doesn't care where it's located in the brain, because it doesn't really matter. It's how you experience it in your mind. We all know what a mind is, yet we can't point to the thing. It's the dominant reality for any given person. It's what we know directly for ourselves. The rest we do not know directly for ourselves. The external universe may or may not be out there. It may or may not look like what we see. What we know for sure is the direct experience of our own mind. That we know. And within this mind, we have a body, and it changes depending on the state of the mind, our state of mind. The body is held in the mind. We can change the mind, play with it. The Buddha is an incredible explorer of the mind. He's trying all kinds of interesting things. For one, he's sitting there deliberately not thinking. I'm not going to think. I'm just going to feel this breath. I'm going to feel every breath. But the mind needs something to hang on to. He says, I'll try to keep track of whether it was a long breath or a short one. So the first instruction is this, long breath or short breath, which one is it? Do you breathe out long? Do you breathe out short? Do you breathe in long or short? It's not important, but it gives you something to hang on to and to pay lucid attention to. Not headache type of attention, not scrunching your brow up or anything like that, but trying to adjust the lenses on binoculars or a, a microscope. It's the same thing with a microscope. A blurry bunch of something and then you click over into the 500 magnification and you see a whole world in a drop of water. This is also in the history of science when these guys got the little lenses going just a few hundred years back. Uh-oh, we discovered in the small dimension that there are worlds of beings. Nobody believed it. There was no germ theory. Nothing. But a drop of water from a marsh has a world of beings in it. This is the lucidity that we're looking for, so it's very important to have similes. What does it mean to concentrate? If we just take the word center out of concentered, concentrated, Centered is much closer to the idea, with center, to be centered and to be lucid. We're getting these instruments ready. They're useful to us to see what the Buddha is aiming for. Because at the end of the Anapanasati Sutta, the Buddha asks you to look at the nature of the world. 
Do you see that it's flowing, that it's not stuff, it's not things, it's flow, it's process? This idea of process is a shocking new discovery for the world, to describe the world, all of it, as process, none of it as things. Naive language says there are things, nouns, and then there are verbs. But actually, when you look close, the nouns turn into verbs too. An apple is appling. It's not an apple, it's appling. You are not you. You are ewing, so to speak. Ewing. We need to prepare the mind to see this, to enter into a new lucid dimension of reality. Things as they truly are. It's when we see things as they truly are that transformation happens. We feel differently. We don't go back to our old ways because we've seen the world in a different way. So this is the function of the breath and why we're cultivating this meditation. We have to keep it beautifully simple. Concentration is merely the adjustment of the lenses until the mind comes into clarity. When you finally find your way onto the breath, you're going to experience almost a lens-like quality in the mind. The mind seems to suddenly come into such lucidity and clarity. These words keep coming up again and again. There's not much of another way we can explain it or talk about it. You experience a certain luminosity, a certain lightness. Light both as more visibility and more ability to see with the mind's eye. And at the same time, you experience a lightness of the body. As a side effect, the body is much less troublesome. What an incredible gift. There's no charge for the breath. It's with you, available all the time. What you can do with your own breath is astonishing. It's right in front of you all the time, and a genius comes along and says, By the way, here's what you can do with this incredible tool, your breath.